John chapter 3. We've only got to chapter 3, and this is one of the most theologically dense uh, chapters in the whole Bible. Probably because it's so relatable. We've got this guy of Nicodemus, and maybe we can relate to him more than we realize. Maybe we also come to Jesus at night where nobody can see. Maybe he's nothing more than a teacher to us. Just a, a teacher who looks like he comes from God. Maybe it's relatable because we have one of the most profound gospel summaries in John 3.16, which says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And that ties in again with the reason that John wrote this gospel, so that you may believe that he is the Son of God and that by believing you may have life eternal. So if you learn nothing else <clears throat> from this church except John 3, perhaps you are sorted. <laughs> it's not a good thing that that's all that you've learned, but it definitely is sufficient at least so that we know the path to salvation. Charles Spurgeon says of John 3, if we were asked to read to a dying man who did not know the gospel, we should probably select this chapter as the most suitable one for such an occasion. And what is good for dying men is good for all of us as well, for that is what we are. And how soon we may be actually at the gates of death, none of us can tell. But more but there at the end, but it's true. And the point is this, in terms of salvation, this is a good chapter to read. And a good chapter to understand. And I think we can all agree on that. So let's have a look at that as we start with John chapter 3. And this evening we're going to keep it nice and short. <laughs> like I say every time, but this time it literally is short. Only three verses, John 3, 1, 2, 3. If you've got your Bibles, follow along. Otherwise, it is there on the screen. By the way, I am reading from a translation called the Legacy Standard Bible. It's a new translation that's been uh, done by a group of very uh, reformed and evangelical uh, people. If you've heard us talking about John MacArthur, he was one of the contributors. And it's based on the legacy of the New American Standard Bible, which is the most literal English translation we can get. That still makes sense. So if you want the closest to the original language, you read the NASB. And the Legacy Standard is a, a sort of updated version of that, the building on the legacy of the, the New American Standard Bible, hence Legacy Standard. Anyways. Now there was a man of the Pharisees. We've encountered them in John chapter 2. Remember the Pharisees came and said, what sign do you have for the authority with which you do these things? So a man from the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Father God, as we look at your word this evening, I pray for clarity. I pray for understanding. I pray that you will open our hearts and our ears to be receptive to what your Holy Spirit has to teach us now in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Chapter or verse run one rather, the man of the Pharisees. Nicodemus was a man who represented the best and the brightest. He was the cream of the crop. We read that he was a Pharisee, which meant he had the top religious influence. He was a top religious scholar. He had uh, mega influence. We read that he went by a Greek name, Nicodemus, which probably indicates that he was well-educated. He might have even been born in a Greek province. Now, most people uh, in those days went by two names, a Jewish name and a Greek name. We know in the case of Peter, for example, he was Simon, then he was called Peter, and he was called Cephas as well, or Cephas as well. Uh, so we can't say that he was a Greek by his name because, you know, uh, John's audience as well was probably in a Greek province. But the fact that he had a Greek name as well probably indicates that he had some kind of education, some kind of outer uh, uh, Gentile education in addition to his deeply Jewish education. You'd have to be educated to be a Pharisee for a start. That he's called Nicodemus means that he's got a little bit more experience with the outside world. And thirdly, we read that he was a ruler of the Jews. Now, he was a member of the Sanhedrin, which was a 70-member council of Jews that were responsible for religious and civil matters in the province of Judea. At this time, the Romans were the people in charge. Judea was a client state of the Romans. But obviously the Romans, Caesar's not going to go and build a palace in Jerusalem and sit there. He's quite comfortable in Rome. So he delegated authority. And this was kind of the parliament <laughs> of the Israelites, the Sanhedrin. So they weren't only responsible for religious matters, but civil matters as well. Different from the Pharisees, of course. Nicodemus comes from two words, Nike, meaning victory, and, de and demos, meaning people. So his name can either mean the people's victory or the victory of the people, or it could mean victory over the people. So without trying to beat this thing too much and read too deeply into what happens, Nicodemus comes to Jesus as the people's victory in a very metaphorical sense. He is the best and the brightest of the Jewish crop, and he comes to Jesus. But things don't go well for him in this interaction, as we shall see. And he actually leaves Jesus having had victory over the people, the things of, of the Spirit having victory over the things of the people, if we're talking about the flesh and the Spirit. So like I said, let's not beat into that <laughs> too much, but just an interesting side note. Make of that what you will. We know that the Pharisees caught wind of what John the baptizer was doing. Remember, they sent guys out to see what he was doing. And that's what happens here with Jesus. In chapter 2, we see him going to the temple for Passover. We see him cleansing the temple. And we read about him performing other signs. So obviously, the Pharisees are taking note. Here comes a guy who's performing signs and wonders. What does this mean? The Pharisees were very supernatural people, unlike the Sadducees. Sadducees denied angels and the resurrection. The Pharisees believed in the spiritual realm and resurrection, all the rest of that. So they jumped uh, at the first sign and wonder that Jesus would have performed. So it's natural that uh, somebody like Nicodemus would go and find out more from Jesus. They could have brushed him off as a crazy person, 
They could have lashed him maybe for disturbing the peace, especially after cleansing the temple. But they didn't because they could see there was something deeper here. There was something special about Jesus. He wasn't just a loony guy. He was actually performing signs and wonders. And it's, it's clear that this kind of influence would have attracted attention from the Pharisees. Enter Nicodemus. And in verse 2 we read, He came to Jesus by night and said to him, You must be a teacher from God. No one could do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Why Nicodemus came at night is not altogether clear. The most common explanation is that he didn't want to be associated with Jesus in um, public. Sorry, there we go. He was afraid of public association with Jesus. He didn't want to be seen around him. Now, this is, we, we accept this explanation, but at this stage of Jesus' ministry, we don't see too much antagonism between him and the Pharisees. That comes later on. We see John the Baptizer having a go at them in the Synoptic Gospels at this stage, but not Jesus. And so, would Nicodemus have been scarmed to go and visit Jesus uh, because people would have said stuff? Maybe, but but maybe not as well. We can't say that for sure. The second explanation, which is probably the most likely, is that he wanted a private, uninterrupted visit with Jesus. This man was performing signs and wonders to the crowds in Jerusalem. He would have been swamped. People would have been coming to him wanting to know what's going on, what's, what's happening here. You know, show us your signs. Nicodemus wanted a private visit. Nicodemus wanted to find out something more. He wanted to have a one-on-one -on -one chat. And he wouldn't have had that if he went to Jesus in the middle of the crowd uh, during Passover in Jerusalem. Now there is a third explanation which is a little bit metaphorical and we're reading it into the, the word a little bit. But nighttime could also represent his spiritual state. We understand the spiritual metaphors of nighttime and daytime being a nighttime out of God's purposes and plans, living in sin, living away from Him, and daytime being eternal life and His promises and His blessings. Uh, the sorrow may last for the night, but joy comes in the morning. That kind of um, an image that we get here. So this is plausible, and we see that in this interaction. But, yeah... Whatever the true uh, explanation is, we know that he went to Jesus by night. And the interaction that happens here is significant. He addresses Jesus as rabbi. Rabbi means my master, my teacher. It is a respectful term, but the suffix there in Hebrew uh, implies that it's mine. My master, my teacher. So, we see that Nicodemus recognizes that Jesus has some kind of godly stamp upon him. However, at the same time, in talking to Jesus, his intentions are clear. He sees the signs. He sees something godly about the handiwork. So what's the deal? That's it. He comes and he says, nobody could be doing this unless... He has God's authority. So that's all he wanted to find out. Why are you doing what you're doing? Or no, not why are you doing, with what authority are you doing it? You know, what's, what's the gig here? What's happening? And that's the problem. His comprehension of Jesus does not go further than the signs and the wonders. 
He sees the signs and the wonders, and he goes and asks about the signs and the wonders. Almost like he comes to him one rabbi to another. So this is significant because he recognizes Jesus as a teacher, as somebody special. But he doesn't come to him as Lord. He comes to him as rabbi. And as a rabbi himself, it's almost like a scholarly interaction. That's the level that we see Nicodemus approaching Jesus with. He might have been flattering Jesus by calling him rabbi, or it might have been genuine respect. But like I said, he wasn't more than a teacher in his eyes. But he also admits that we know that you are a teacher from, from God. We know. That could refer to the Sanhedrin. It could refer to the Pharisees. It could refer to a group of the Pharisees that Nicodemus represented. But the most common and probably best interpretation is a generally acknowledged and accepted public opinion. So when Nicodemus comes and says, we know that you are a teacher of God, that was the public opinion. And that's obvious because he was performing signs and wonders. So people see the signs and wonders, they think, you know, God's handiwork must be involved here. And this is the sad thing, is that people recognize that signs and wonders has something to do with God, but they never move past the signs and wonders. And it's so dangerous because that's what we see in, you know, these, these big mega churches who have a big emphasis on signs and wonders and healings and praying and blessing uh, people and prosperity and all the rest of that. Is that there is an element of God attached. There is an element of truth attached. But it never moves past the signs and the wonders. Now the Bible also warns against false teachers. So Nicodemus could also be coming to Jesus to check, is he, is he a real teacher? Is he a real prophet? Or is he one of these false prophets that have dabbled in witchcraft and now have signs and wonders? But he doesn't, he doesn't come like that. He comes to Jesus saying, we see that you are somebody from God. But it's with no more reverence, it's with no more understanding, and it's with no more desire than the mere public opinion that existed we think Jesus is a teacher that's all that's it he's done some fancy signs he must have God's approval but what what then it's stuck with the 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 signs and the performer of the signs now we know that the signs must point to the person who does the signs but I'm saying that in the in the literal kind of sense. They're interested in what can this man do for me with the science. So are Jesus' signs godly? If so, what can we do with them? Remember, the Pharisees were a far cry from genuine biblical authority. We see that in the scripture. Last week we looked at what Jesus said about them. Do what they say, but don't do what they do, because they're hypocrites. So there is an element of the lawyer. They're teaching some kind of righteousness, but they're not a righteous group. They're hypocrites. So if they've taken God's righteousness, they've taken the Mosaic law, and they've manipulated it to serve their own gains, 
What are they going to do with this person of Jesus? They're going to manipulate him, but they're going to try to understand him first. And if, if they can comprehend him, if they can understand what he's about, they can adapt him and they can manipulate him to serve their own ends and their own gains. Hypocritical gains, if I might add. Imagine what it would have been like had Jesus said and done everything according to what Nicodemus wanted him to say and do. He wanted him to say, yes, I'm a miracle worker from God. What's next? What can we do here? I think we would have ended up with something similar to like what I described earlier. Nothing more than a big church attracting lots of people every week, wanting signs and wonders and blessings and healings and all the rest of it. And that's it. And it, it starts with us understanding that God is not in the business of signs and wonders. God is a good God. And he's not going to do something that is contrary to his nature. But at the same time, God is a loving God. If God is good, he needs to punish evil and sin. But if God is loving, he's going to make a way for his creation not to be punished by sin. And so, when we understand who God is truly, we see that it's not about the signs and the wonders. What, what are the signs and wonders? What do they mean? What are they pointing to? God's in the salvation business. God's in the kingdom business. And we see in Hebrews 2, 3 to 4, the writer says, How shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? Not how shall we escape if we ignore the signs and wonders, if we ignore so great a salvation, this salvation which was first announced by the Lord. Jesus was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also testified to it. What's it? Salvation. God testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles. The signs, wonders, and miracles are a testimony of the salvation. They point to something. And by the gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will, to the people of God, because of salvation. Did Nicodemus ask about salvation? Did Nicodemus ask about truth and righteousness? Did Nicodemus ask about anything that had to do with the law? His first thing was, we see that you're a teacher of God. You know, nobody could do these signs unless God was with him. So did he wonder about the deeper things here? Probably not. We see a man who, who cautiously approaches Jesus with a very fleshy perspective. He comes with his, with his fleshy understanding, with his Jewish understanding, with his Mosaic law understanding. And he almost states the obvious, expecting something great to happen. If he was truly immersed in the law, if he was truly immersed in what God was doing with the law, doing with the prophets, pointing to Jesus, he would have gone deeper. But he didn't go deeper. Not initially. He states the obvious and waits for something to happen. And something does happen. 
But what Jesus says completely shakes his whole shtick of being this righteous Pharisee, ruler of the Jews. Now we're giving Nicodemus a hard rep here. But I'm, I'm speaking from the perspective that he had. This fleshy, Jewish, um, Pharisaic perspective. And we see in verse 3 how Jesus answers him. Truly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Huh? <laughs> What's that got to do with the question? Nicodemus says, you know, nobody could do these things unless you have God. So he's kind of waiting for, okay, well, tell us who you are now. And what does Jesus say? No one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. Does Jesus give Nicky what he wants? No. Truly, unless you're born again, regenerated, you cannot see the kingdom of God. They wanted to know if he was a teacher from God. What would that knowledge do for them? Like I said, if they manipulated the Mosaic law, they could manipulate the person of Jesus. They weren't interested in what he had to teach. So already Jesus' reply indicates that the whole premise is incorrect. They don't have the kingdom of God in mind. They don't have an eternal perspective. They've got a now perspective. Why do you want a teacher from God if you're not even able to see the kingdom of God? Now the kingdom of God refers to the realm in which he operates, his sovereignty, his blessings, his promises. The kingdom of God is a big doctrine in the Bible. It refers to different things. But in this sense, it refers to what happens after we regenerate it, living new life. So how can we see the things of God? How can we see eternal life? How can we see what God is doing? If we aren't born again. And moreover, why do we want to teach her for those things if we can't even see those things? This is what we spoke about a little bit last week. Why do you come to church if you're not willing to grow spiritually? Why do you want to be called a Christian if you are not prepared to live in the presence of God? And for those of you who remember our Reformation message about regeneration preceding faith, how can you decide to say yes to Jesus and to new life if you don't know what new life is? Nicodemus wanted something on the outside. He wanted something tangible for now, that tangible to the flesh. And Jesus says, you cannot see unless something happens here first. You cannot see what's happening on the outside, what you're really looking for if something hasn't happened here first. At the same time, he shatters the Jewish conception that their genealogy saves them. So by virtue of being born a Jew, people thought they were automatically saved and go to heaven. And Jesus says, being a Jew cannot save you. Following the Mosaic law cannot save you. Circumcision cannot save you. Unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. In preparing for this, I read that some Jewish rabbis actually taught that Abraham hangs out at the gates of hell, just waiting to make sure that none of his descendants accidentally wander in. If, if, if a, a descendant of Abraham, a circumcised Jew, wanders into hell by accident, he's there to quickly grab them and say, ah, this way, please. Now, the words born again 
come from two words, genau, which literally means producing offspring, comes from the word genealogy, and again is anothen, which means from above, literally from above. Some of your translations might say that. So the word is also used in describing how the temple tore from above to the bottom, from top to bottom, when Jesus said, uh, it is finished and closed his eyes, and the, temple went, uh, the curtain in the temple went, was torn. But it's also used in, in James 1 verse 17. Every good and perfect gift is from above. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. So born again, having new life from above, from who? From the Father, a gift from the Father. That's what we need to understand when we read this. Where does new life come from? From above, from God. We can't give ourselves new life. The rabbis can't give people new life. Rabbis can't regenerate people as much as they like to be. The Mosaic law couldn't regenerate people. It could only come from God. Like I said, the kingdom of God refers to the sphere and the realm of his blessing and authority. It's a demonstration of his sovereignty and the reality of eternal life. It's a, the reality of eternal life. To the Pharisees, it was mystical, it was supernatural. The things of the spiritual realm, the things of the kingdom of God, they were supernatural. But Jesus makes it into something real. He says you cannot come into, you cannot partake in, uh, you, cannot, you cannot be in his presence in this reality unless the change comes from above. We will read later on in John 6:44. Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them, and I will raise them up at the last day. Only Calvinists smiling at the moment. I don't see. <laughs> but let's have a look at this. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them, unless the Father gives them regeneration, unless the Father gives them new life. And then secondly, I will raise them up at the last day, eternal life. It becomes a reality. It's not about now. It's not about this fleshy earth. Reality, eternal life. It must come from God, this new life, and it must result in eternal life because this is the kingdom of God. To Nicodemus and the public opinion, they see a teacher with signs from God. They see the mystical. They seem, uh, see that with fleshy eyes, with mosaic law eyes, with Jewish eyes, with human eyes. We could add whatever other characteristic we want, but the point is it's not with new eyes. It's not with new life vision. But Jesus says, those who are born again will see the kingdom of God, salvation, a savior, him as savior, the reality of sin and a good God, the reality of eternal life. That can only be seen with spiritual eyes. Nicodemus came in simple human terms. He came with a simple human understanding. Yet his whole spiritual state was shaken and stirred by something that he was not even able to comprehend. And that's because, metaphorically speaking, he came 
at night time. He came with a darkened spiritual state. He didn't come with new life. He didn't ask about the things of God with new life. He came with a fleshy understanding. And I have expanded these three verses into something quite big here. But we must understand the depth. In the first three verses, we already see the stage being set for this interaction between Jesus and Nicodemus. Spirit versus the flesh. And it will make sense as we carry on with it. But we see flesh coming to ask about spiritual things, even though it's got no idea of the spiritual things. Therefore, it cannot even ask about the spiritual things. It's asking about fleshy things with this haze of maybe it's spiritual. And Jesus simply says, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again, unless they are regenerated, unless they have new life. And so to conclude, take home lessons. Firstly, the things of God are not the things of man. That's as simple as we can, as we can state it for this first interaction, this initial encounter. Nicodemus comes to Jesus with the things of man. And Jesus says, the things of God are not the things of man. Where men can only see signs, he shows us a whole new kingdom realm. Where we can only see what's happening now and what's tangible to the flesh, he shows us what's an eternal reality. And then secondly, the things of God are not unavailable to man. But we need change from above before we can partake. So where we see signs, he's got an eternal reality. Now he hasn't made that eternal reality unavailable to us. But he needs to work in us before we can see that eternal reality. Again, there's also a negative or a rather converse implication uh, in these take-home lessons. If the things of God are not the things of man, then let's not make the things of God the things of man and vice versa, as we so often do. And if the things of God are not unavailable to man, let's not make them unavailable. Let's pursue them. Let's find out how can, we, how can they be available to us. It starts in here and then making that decision to say yes, to say I don't want this perishing flesh. I want the eternal reality of the kingdom of God. I want to partake in this eternal reality of the kingdom of God. I want to partake in this reality of eternal life. I don't want to see Jesus as a teacher. I don't want to see him as a, only a sign worker. I want to see him as God. I want to see him as Savior. I want to see him as the king of this eternal kingdom. Amen. And I think I'm finished in less than 30 minutes. I'll have to check the video to the back. All of you who doubted. <laughs> and the iPad's on 1%, so what a good place to end. <laughs> Amen. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word to us this evening. Thank you for this time that we could share together. 
Thank you that we can read about this interaction between you and Nicodemus, how he came to you at nighttime, how he inquired of the signs and wonders, and he wanted to know what's going on here. And very plainly, you stated that it's, it's not about the things of man. It's the kingdom of God. And unless somebody is born again, he cannot see that kingdom of God. And Father God, so often we try to make the things of man the things of God. We try to take the things of God and make them the things of man. Forgive us, I pray, and help us to understand that your kingdom is your kingdom. Your kingdom is an eternal reality. Your kingdom is not subject to the perishing matter and um, everything else of this world that is going to rot away. Your kingdom is eternal. Your word is forever. So, Father, I pray for new, new life. I pray for regeneration. For those who have not yet seen the kingdom of God, I pray for your touch upon their hearts, that their eyes would be opened, that they would look beyond the signs and the wonders, that they would see their Savior and your kingdom. And as we leave this place as well this evening, May we too see the kingdom of God as our reality and not as something that is in a fairy tale, something that is mystical in the Bible, but an, a reality that we have now. Help us to live in your kingdom, I pray. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your kindness. Thank you for your guidance and your strength. We give you all glory, honor, and thanks. In Jesus' name, amen.